Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zanashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Howdy, hey, howdy. Ah, <laughs> uh, John, you troublemaker. You just, yeah, trying, to, just trying, to, trying to throw me off, aren't you? <laughs> just got to change it up one, once in a while, you know. Love variety. Can't sure. do it the same way all the time. Sure. I guess I guess that's the, uh, that's the way it is for you. I've been uh, just like a... One-legged, one-legged man in the uh, ass-kicking contest. It's been, uh, it's been crazy. Lots of, That's lots crazy. of work up there in in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's you know all the pandemic changes. Everything's everything's changing every day. Everything's changing now. We can't get cans. We can't get CO two. We can't. You know, right. There's too many, too many problems. Yeah, I can see that. <sighs> But, you know, here I get a chance to uh, sit with you for an hour or two and, uh, you know, you make have a beer. Seeing you makes me happy. Oh, good. Good. Even pandemic distance uh, still makes me happy. (laughs) And you know who else makes me happy? Our good friend, John Blickman, I would imagine. There you go. You know, and not just because he pays for this show. So uh, all you listening uh, don't have to. It's because he's actually a a, a genius uh, engineering mind that has dedicated uh, his life to uh, making your brew day, uh, you know, that much more uh, innovative and right. easy and fun. And uh, uh, so uh, check him out, BlickmanEngineering.com. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, look at all the neat stuff they have there and send an email to my good friend, John Blickman at uh, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell John how much you appreciate that he's paid for the show so you don't have to. So that's, right. that's the least you could do you could do for me today. Uh, our guest today is uh, Martin Cornell. He is an eight-time winner of the British Guild of Beer Writers Award and one of the UK's most read beer bloggers. He has written about f- beer, food, travel, and the history of beer for newspapers and mag- magazines around the world. His book, Amber, Gold, and Black, is regarded as the definitive history of British beer styles. And uh, Martin's currently uh, finishing up a three-year project on kind of the history and, uh, you know, the, the fascinating stories of Porter as a beer style across the world. And so we thought it'd be kind of a fun thing to, to get him uh, here and uh, speak with us about Porter. How are you doing, Martin? Oh, I'm doing well, thank you. Yes, it's uh, it's a pleasure to, to be here. I, it didn't, wasn't meant to be a three-year project, uh, but it just grew and grew. You know, there, it turns out that there is just so much to say about Porter as the the world's first global beer style, the first style to not only be drunk 
in dozens of countries around the world, but, but it brewed in, in dozens of countries around the world as well. And I think people have perhaps forgotten uh, or never, never knew just how popular Porter used to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, we, yeah. we never planned on this being a 16-year show, did we? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so there, there you go. That time sneaks up on you. Well, and Porter was, you know, one of the f- the first uh, industrial beer. Uh, is is that correct? You know, yeah. um, mass produced beer. It, it it turned out uh, once they uh, started making the beer um, that it was actually very suitable for. Uh, producing on a much larger scale than they've been able to do before. It was a very uh, robust beer. Uh, and as I'm, I'm sure you know, and I'm sure a lot of the uh, people uh, watching and listening know, um, for a long time before the invention of uh, cool- cooling technologies, it was impossible to brew successfully uh, from about the end of April right through till really the, uh, September or even the end of September. Um, so they had to brew strong beers in March, strong beers in October, uh, to, to last that, that gap. Porter, they found because, uh, probably of the, of the, uh, brown malts that went into it because of the greater quantities of hops that went into it, you were able to brew it, uh, for a, a longer time period. You could, you could go right through till, uh, May, you could begin again, uh, at the beginning of September, this was an advantage immediately for the for the porter brewers. Oh, and also, um, you could brew it in larger vessels, and this was also important for for scaling up. Because uh, again, before uh, cooling technology, the larger the vessel, the hotter the, the fermentation got. With porter, again, because it was a much more robust beer, um, you could use larger vessels and uh, you've got all the economies of scale and so on. So uh, the porter brewers found that they were able to uh, to grow larger than the, than the, the ale and the ordinary uh, beer brewers before them were, were able to do. Uh, and these economies of scale eventually meant that, that they uh, the, the, the porter brewers just uh, outpaced everybody else. When, uh, um, the whole story of how uh, Porter started. Now, th- there was always the story of uh, Ralph Harwood in 1722 oh. making a beer called Entire. It was the Three Threads, and this was the start of Porter. And uh, how, how true was any of that? Uh, <laughs> Ralph Harwood, yes. Um, when I when I first started researching this stuff i'd read all the books and they all said rough hardwood but as you say 1722 and i thought right okay well let's let's try to find um actual evidence for this this happening when when did it happen let's find out more about it but the more i researched it uh the more i was unable to find anything uh, from the time period from the early 18th century uh that confirmed that this story was true and it, it turns out that uh what, what happened, what seems to have happened, it was that in, uh, in 1802, uh, in other words, 80 years after the events supposedly being described, a journalist called uh, John Feltham wrote a story in which he uh, got a bit confused uh, about the references to three threads, which, which was a thing. Three threads was a thing at the beginning of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. He got confused with uh, one or two mentions about Ralph Harwood, who was a brewer, 
in Shoreditch on the edge of London, uh, but not a very big brewer. He was about the 20th largest brewer in London at that time, when London had probably 80 or 100 uh, big, big and small brewers. So Ralph Harwood was uh, certainly he brewed porter, but he wasn't he wasn't one of the major players at all. Um, Feltham managed to get hold of a few bits of information and basically invent the story that uh, Porter, which is also known as Entire Butt, and we'll, we'll come back to the, to the reasons for that later on, I'm sure. Uh, Porter, he decided, was a replacement for this beer that had existed called Three Threads. Uh, wrote this story, as is the way with uh, 18th century journalism, this was immediately plagiarised and repeated by literally dozens of other publications uh, across Britain and eventually around the world, repeated hundreds and hundreds of times. And because nobody ever challenged it, nobody ever uh, attempted to find out if there was any actual basis for this story, it, it became the accepted um, story behind the uh, invention of Porto. And I, I think one of the reasons was that people like the idea of, of the hero who comes up with uh, the answer to a problem. You know, that yeah. supposedly um, this, the story that Felton put up was that three threads uh, required serving from three different casks. And this, this man called uh, Ralph Howard solved the problem of the poor old landlord having to rush back with some fours uh, from tap to tap uh, by combining it all in, in one cask. Uh, and this was the, the entire but. Uh, unfortunately, that's all complete nonsense. <laughs> what Three Threads actually was, was a, was a tax fiddle. Back in the early 19th century, of course, they had no way of measuring the strength of, of beer to tax it. So they did it on the price of the beer. Uh, beer under a certain price was taxed as small beer. And it paid, I can't remember exactly how much, but something like, let's say, uh, six pence a, a barrel, a cask. Uh, strong beer, which, uh, which they defined as having a retail value of, I think, over six shillings a, a barrel, um, that paid one and sixpence tax, one shilling and sixpence. Um, but because they didn't know how to measure or couldn't successfully measure um, what strong or what weak was, there was the possibility of brewing extra strong beer and that would only pay the tax on strong beer. Uh. What landlords and brewers started doing was brewing extra strong beer, which only paid the tax, the same tax as strong beer, and then mixing that with the small beer, which were paid less tax, they now had two barrels of beer, the same strength as strong, extra strong, yeah. and, and the small mixed together. You've got two, uh, two barrels of strong, which had only paid the, the total yeah. tax of one strong and one weak. I hope, you, I hope you're following me and I'm not... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So uh, it was all illegal, of course. You know, the law, the law uh, stopped this happening or supposed to stop this happening. But that was what Three Threads was. Uh, it was a mixture of very strong beer and weak beer sold as strong beer uh, in order to try to not pay as much tax as they were meant to. Had nothing at all to do with Porter. Uh, Porter has a completely different set of origins. Um, Porter began as... Uh, London Brown Beer, which was one of the, the big sellers at, at the time. Uh, and what year was that? 
and that was we're talking, London Brown Beer was um, through from the probably the arrival of, of hopped beer in this country, uh, which is you know the 15th century when um, immigrants from um, Europe bought the use of hops. Previously, we'd had <laughs> ale, which which originally meant unhopped. Uh, beer maybe flavored with other things maybe not you know it's sure. quite unclear but we will we'll try i'll try not to lose the plot by talking about that so hot beer came in uh it was uh, brown it was fairly lightly hopped it was probably quite strong um seven percent perhaps something on that sort of order uh, and this ran through quite happily until the end of the uh, 18th, 17th century, when uh, the government was looking for ways to raise revenue. We were involved with a lot of wars in Britain at that time, um, fighting the French, uh, fighting in Ireland, fighting in North America, a war I believe you guys called King William's War. Um, and the government needed to raise money to, to pay for this. So they, they started putting uh, taxes up on uh beer itself and also on malt and on hops so what the brewers did to try to keep their beer affordable uh, they did what brewers always do they lowered the strength uh two problems with that one problem is that if you uh lower the strength then the beer is likely to go off more quickly so they therefore increased the amount of hops in in the beer oh, yeah. the other thing that they did was to start using uh, cheaper malt and the cheapest malt was wood dried malt problem with wood dried malt is that it's very smoky it's rauch, rauch beer basically right uh, so to try to get rid of the smoky flavors they stored the beer longer because over uh, six months nine months the, the smoky the very strong smoke taste will will slowly disappear um, and they were able to do this uh because they were hopping it more anyway so they just up the hops and that way the beer would would keep even longer until the smoky flavors had, had reduced certainly if not totally vanished what they didn't they didn't they didn't know what was going to happen next but what happened next over the period that they were storing it of course and again they they knew nothing about this retinomyces which was ubiquitous in wooden brewing vessels and, right. and uh, storage vessels and so on. Bretonomyces comes out of the wood and starts munching away uh, at all the higher sugars and so on in the beer, producing all these lovely estuary flavours. At the same time, because you've now got a very well-hopped brew, you're not getting the sorts of uh, lactobacillus and pediococcus organisms that you, you do in, for example, um, lamp, uh, those sorts of Belgian sour beers right. so you were ending up at the uh, after the um storage period when the beer went on sale you now had a beer that was uh beautifully smooth um lots of lovely estuary flavors to it uh all entirely unplanned but uh proved an enormous hit right and it was an enormous hit with the uh working men of London, basically. And these guys, uh, many of them worked uh, carrying goods on and off ships, uh, carrying goods around the streets, uh, taking parcels hither and thither, uh, carrying packages. And these people were known as porters, 
and uh, they were they were organised uh, by the City of London authorities into two separate types. There were the fellowship porters who did the uh, carrying on and off board ships, and the street porters or ticket porters. They uh, needed an awful lot of calories to keep them going. It was hard work, strenuous work. They uh -huh. needed uh, to, uh, lots of energy uh, to carry on doing this. And one of the ways that they got their energy was by drinking, drinking on the job. Well, that's, that's why I drink on the job. <laughs> Absolutely. So they drank a lot of beer while they were working. They were notorious for it. Uh, and it was six, seven, eight pints a day these guys were drinking. Wow. Not to get themselves drunk, but to just get the calories to be able to do their, their tough, hard jobs. Um, so it started out that uh, they, they, they gradually uh, were storing this beer longer and longer uh, in butts, which is uh, the size of cask, um, three times a barrel, if I'm remembering correctly, which is 108 gallons. Uh, storing these for uh, nine months and up to a year, gradually they, they learned that if they stored it uh, longer and longer, the beer got, got better and better. Um, so this was originally known as uh, butt beer because it was stored in butts. Uh, and, but gradually uh, it it got the name of the people that were its biggest fans, porters. The name slowly changed from being referred to as butt beer to being referred to as porter. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope that, that has given yeah. you a sufficient explanation there. Right. Let's, the take a, let's take a short break. And yeah. when we come back, I want to hear more about uh, how porter developed. We'll be back right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking with Martin Cornell about uh, the history of Porter, and he's been uh, researching. Uh, uh, Porter for the last uh, three years, so probably you know before that too. You you learned a lot about Porter, and you were talking about how they were they were storing the beer in butts uh, for nine months, a year, and, and the beer improved because of the Britannomyces. Yeah. But uh, you know, I've also heard these stories of the the large uh, uh, you know uh, large um, vats in in yeah. London, and then the, the the staves giving way and drowning yeah. people in the streets and. What about those stories? Well, the, uh, the problem with um, storing it in butts is that you needed a lot of cellars to, to store this beer in. 
Uh, and it was also expensive in, in terms of you know, um, cooperage. Yeah, having yeah having the butts uh, built by the Coopers in the first place and maintaining them, and they they had constant problems that people were stealing stealing the butts, you know, cutting them in half and using them as flower planters and all, all sorts of other things. Uh, and it was actually quite dangerous. There were stories of um, people going down into into the cellars where these butts were sitting, and of course there's fermentation going on, and again they didn't know what was happening but these butts of course were f- uh, these cellars were filling up with co2 carbon dioxide you know people were going in there and collapsing other people were going in there to try to rescue them collapsing as well you know, people were dying in these in these cellars sometimes mm. um so nobody's exactly sh- sure when it started happening but people uh, worked out that maybe it was better rather than uh, having all these butts lying around in these cellars and i think they were paying a shilling a butt a year uh, to to lease out cellars around the city of London, uh, maybe it was better to, to start building large fats. So they started off building uh, fats that were 150 barrel size, and gradually, as the, the fat builders' te- uh, technology got better, so the vats got larger and larger. Uh, but they did uh, have a series of unfortunate accidents. Um, the, the famous one, of course, was uh, the Great Flood of Beer Flood of London in 1814, but there have been quite a few over the years before that. Uh, uh, there was one uh, in Whitbread's Brewery on the edge of the city of London where uh, apparently they, they drowned uh, hundreds of rats when the, <laughs> when the vat burst and flooded into, into the cellars and uh, pulling out dead rats for... <laughs> An extended period afterwards. So they were, they were pushing the envelope as far as the technology was concerned. Um, and it, it, it eventually ended in, in dramatic f- fashion, of course, with the, the Great London Beer Flood. And that wasn't even one of the biggest vats. That was a 3,000 barrel vat, I think, uh, of that particular brewery uh, called Mukes's, M-E-U-X, Mukes, Mr. Mukes. Um, it was one of the smaller vats in the, in the brewery. They had 20,000 barrel vats but that that kind of uh put an end to the fashion of building bigger and bigger vats i mean it was a bit if i may use the expression it was a bit willy waving really you know my bat vat is bigger than your vat right right oh fantastic um and and also one of the fascinating things about porter is is the way that uh tastes changed uh the taste the public's taste for a long time was for well-aged porter uh, gradually, in fact, by the time uh, of the Great London Beer Flood, tastes were moving away to uh, what was known as mild porter, which was which was mild, meaning young, unaged. The uh, the aged porter was called stale in in the terminology of the time, which is not okay. stale as we use the word today. Just meant it stood; it had been standing around, and it had got all those lovely uh, kind of uh, estery slightly tart uh flavors from the britannomyces yeah indeed and the mild uh porter was a lot sweeter not not a lot sweeter but certainly sweeter uh gradually over the uh as the 18th century wore on whereas previously around about the 1740s they would they would tended to be drinking uh all stale porter um you know aged anything up to a couple of years they started uh, mixing the mild, the young porter, the fresh porter, with the the older porter. 
Okay. Uh, and so by the by the time you get into the 19th century, uh, you would be you would still be able to go into a into a public house and you would order porter and they would be able to pour it from two different pumps one stale one mild and you would say you know draw it mild or draw it stale or whatever was your your preference mm. uh, so and, and again by that time um because slowly people were were turning away from the, the very strong tart flavors and why there's a you know, a subject that I could spend hours debating uh, why t- tastes in beer changed, but I, I don't think we'll ever know why. Um, and eventually, by the end of the 19th century, you start uh, reading about them the pulling down these these huge vats uh, out of the breweries and, and recycling them into um, bars in pubs. So somewhere, perhaps even even now, there are bars in pubs that are built out of out of recycled old porter vats. I I don't know. I've always wanted to. See if it's possible to start drilling into a few old pub bars. Yeah. See if we can identify them. <laughs> Dendrochronology, as I believe, is the, the expression. Well, and one one thing I I love about uh, your writing and uh, the the work you do, you really dig into what was the truth. You know, a lot of these stories that we get are just just that stories, and that's and the truth is somewhere you know, in between all the stories and you're, you, you dig in and you actually research and have proof as to why something actually happened, you know, the way that you write about it, which I really love. And uh, I got to also give you uh, uh, kudos for your uh, Strange Tales of Ale, which is one of my favorite books. I love that book. I think everyone uh, that's interested in beer and they, you know, just kind of the s- stories and, and history of beer ought to get get themselves a copy. I think you can pick it up off of Amazon, uh, mm-hmm. uh, pretty pretty cheap in the U.S. So uh, my career has been as a journalist, uh, and I I like the stories. You know, I like telling telling the stories, um, and there are some fantastic stories around, and, it, and uh, there are uh, stories that that turn out to be true that everybody didn't think was true. One of the ones in, in Strange Tales of Ale, getting completely off the subject of uh, Porter for a moment, uh, is about the um, IPA shipwreck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the story was that uh, IPA was introduced uh, into Britain. It had only been a, a beer sold, sold in India, but it was introduced in Britain after a ship was wrecked in a storm. And... Uh, the insurance companies salvaged some of the beer and put it on sale uh, in Liverpool. And everybody said, well, this is great. We want more of this. And, and that started a market for IPA in England as opposed to in India. And nobody had been able to find uh, the story of this wreck. And everybody said, oh, this is just a myth. It, it didn't happen. Now, the great thing about being a researcher today with the Internet is the number of newspapers that are now out there, the old, old newspapers that have been scanned. It is unbelievable. In fact, there's far too much information out there. Uh, but it does mean that you can you can actually track these stories down. And I was uh, looking for something else um, and found this magazine where uh, this guy actually talks about this incident. Now, it, the book 
that it uh, is reported in said that it happened in 1827, if I remember correctly. So everybody had been looking around that kind of period for this this supposed shipwreck and been unable to find it. This obscure magazine article, which somebody had scanned in and put on the web, uh, said that it had happened in 1839 and, and gave the name of the ship, the Crusader. Uh, and so given those two clues and given the fact that there are now uh, thousands and thousands of newspapers scanned, it took about half an hour to find newspaper reports of, yes, this, this shipwreck, this ship genuinely had gone down in a, a famous storm in 1839, um, one of the most violent storms ever to hit British Isles. Uh, it had been wrecked off the coast of uh, Blackpool, which is in uh, just north of, of Liverpool. Um, the, the crew had all escaped, but the barrels, uh, and even named the brewers, Bass and Allsop, two very famous uh, Burton-on-Trent IPA brewers, uh, the barrels had washed up and down the coast. Indeed, they had been salvaged, and the newspapers actually carried uh, the reports of the sale of these of these barrels of IPA. So yes, this story that everybody thought was a myth was actually true. And, and, and we could now, uh, thanks to the internet and thanks to uh, all the hard work that uh, libraries and other people have, have put into uh, scanning all these newspapers, we, we can now actually point to this. Uh, and the same is the same is true with uh, a lot of the, of the uh, stuff in the, in the Porter book that I simply would not have all these great stories that I'm finding. Um, without the fact that you can now find all these newspapers uh, on the web. So you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the London Brown beer and uh, up until a certain date, Porter was, uh, you know, a paler version than we see today, today with black patent malt, yeah. the, the, the invent of the, the patent uh, malt, it, it became darker. Yeah. Or, yeah, well, one of, the, one of the problems that they that they had, uh, technologically speaking, was that was that around about um, the seventeen eighties, they started uh, using the saccharometer to measure uh, how much fermentable material they were getting out of their malt, and, it, and at that point they realised that the brown malt that they were using, one hundred percent brown malt, diastasic brown malt, so something that we we really don't have today. Um, uh, and we're not even certain how to make, although people have, of course, started trying to, to make uh, diastasic brown malt. Diastasic brown malt is very bad uh, because you, you don't get a lot of fermentable material out of it compared to pale malt. The um, porter brewers were always under enormous pressure to keep costs down and to, and to sell their beer as cheaply as possible. And every time uh, they try to put the price of a, of a pint or a quart of porter up there were literally riots on the street and, and mm. uh, you know people oh. uh protesting outside brewers homes and and so on so um they realized that it would be a lot cheaper to brew the beer with pale malt because they would get much better extract out of it but then of course they'd lose the color it wouldn't mm. be a dark color that people wanted i was probably uh, descriptions um seemed to hint that it wasn't the complete black beer that we know today. It was very, it was certainly very dark brown. Um, but they, they talk about it being made transparent. Well, that suggests, because to begin with, it wasn't transparent. And gradually, as they learned to age it more and to use Isinglass, it became 
transparent. Well, that, that is a hint that you could actually see through it. It wasn't totally, totally black. Um, but even so, people, people expected their porter to be very dark. So okay. uh, if you brew a beer with, with uh, quantities of pale malted, obviously it's not going to be as dark. So th they needed to find ways of making a, a dark beer, uh, but by still using as much pale malt as they could get away with. The problem they had was that the tax authorities would not let them put anything into uh, beer that had not been taxed. So they couldn't use burnt sugar or anything like that. Uh, they had a great deal of difficulty persuading the tax authorities to actually let them use roast malt. They couldn't use roast barley because that hadn't been taxed. Eventually, uh, a man called Daniel Wheeler invented uh, a way of roasting malt upon which the tax had been paid, so that was fine, uh, and producing an extract that you then only had to use I think they started off using 5%. You could actually get as low as 2% of this uh, roasted malt in a completely otherwise pale malt beer. Uh, so unfortunately for him, he then lost uh, the case when he tried to protect his, his patent. And although people carried on calling it patent malt, he didn't have a, a patent on it. And so he didn't make the money, obviously, that he was expecting to. Um, so, but from from that point on, from eighteen seventeen on, you start to see uh, increasing use of uh, this roast malt. Uh, there was a split, interestingly, between uh, practice in Ireland, where they almost all Irish brewers, if not all Irish brewers, and certainly Guinness, went over to using uh, like ninety eight percent pale malt and just and two percent uh, okay. roast malt. In Britain, and certainly in London, the brewers liked to use at least a certain quantity, uh, 10, 15, maybe even 20, of brown or amber malt because they, they felt it gave a better flavour. So then that's where you start to see a difference between Irish-style porters and stouts and, and British-style porters and stouts. All right, let's take uh, one more short break. And when we come back, I, I, I want to hear more about uh, Ireland and how, you know, is porter and stout the same thing or are they, are they really different? We'll be back right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking the history of porters and uh, around the world. Uh, we haven't gotten around the world yet, but we've gotten now to Ireland. And, uh, you know, one of the questions I always get from people is, well, what's the difference between porter and stout? And, you know, you make up some sort of, uh, you know, uh, differentiation. And, and generally, I think, uh, you know, porters tend to, you know, have a, a different character than a, a lot of the especially the dry stouts uh yeah. but you know over at, at, back in time it was irish brewers were brewing porter and then they just started saying well i have a stout porter i have an yeah. extra porter and then it became like an extra stout and it was just kind of a marketing thing to say to call your beer stout because it sounds more impressive than porter. Uh, but yes. Yeah, originally, I mean, the only difference originally was that, that stout simply meant strong. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. It was a stronger version. And uh, originally, you didn't have to uh, be brown or a porter or black. You would get pale stout, and pale stout was a thing, uh, certainly as late as the 1840s. You, you get mentions of pale stout. Uh, brewers in London were, were brewing pale stout. Uh, and the stronger versions of porter were brown stout, and that was, that was what they were called. Uh, uh, but if you read the descriptions of um, brewers talking about the beers, they use uh, strong porter and, and brown stout more or less interchangeably. You know, um, there was no real um, distinct difference uh, between you know where a, where a porter turned into a stout, apart from around about you know maybe seven or eight percent, you start calling it a stout porter, mm-hmm. uh, and gradually the porter bit got left off. And so it was just stout. But to begin with, they were uh, exactly the same beer, except that one was was stronger than the other. Uh, and they were normally uh, brewed from exactly the same uh, grain bill, exactly the same uh, hot bill, and it, and you might even get um, you know off the same mash. Uh, sorry, off the same quantity of grain. You would your first mash would be the stout porter. Your next one would be your ordinary porter, and then you, you'd have probably um, the last washings. You would recycle back into the into the next mash, which was not not an uncommon thing for for people to be doing then. So it was stout and porter, exactly the same beer. Uh, gradually through the nineteenth century, you start to see stouts being brewed on their own, and there was a tendency for stouts uh, to become a little sweeter. And you then uh, get this whole divergence into um, milk stouts and and uh, other uh, sweeter forms of stout. Uh, but, but in Ireland certainly, but they, they never really went uh, particularly for the uh, the sweet styles of stout. Uh, then you, you you do have these these dry stouts. Um, but uh, Guinness internally uh, just called its beers. Porter and extra porter for a long time, um, and that, that, as far as they were concerned, they were they were all porters, and it was only indeed for marketing purposes that they called it uh, stout and extra stout and foreign extra stout, and the only difference between the extra stout uh, and the foreign extra stout was that the foreign extra stout had more hops in because it was going abroad uh, to hotter climes, and therefore it needed to to have more hops in to preserve it. Now, Martin, I have a question. At this point in time, was the beer still being aged for a long period, or they had stopped that, say, in you know a period before? Uh, by now, uh, by the, by, probably the eighteen fifties. You're, you're now getting um, what what was called running porter, uh, which was okay. very very fresh uh, and very. Um, Know, sent out quite quickly uh and at the same time you were getting the the aged stouts okay so uh yes you start to you start to see um a split between the the the, the aged stuff and the the fresher stuff because uh people were, were as far as you know most people were concerned they, they didn't want these very heavy, very uh, strong tasting beers anymore. Some people did. So there was a, a market for the aged uh, stouts. But people were much more into 
um, running porters, porters that were served up uh, very quickly. Yeah, because you know, my, my impressions of the brown malt porters uh, were I've, I've brewed with brown malt and it is a very dry, astringent flavor, yeah. very strong. That would take time to, to precipitate out and mellow. Uh, yeah. I know my own uh, effort did. And so when they started switching from the brown malt to the pale malt because of the invention of the saccharimeter, um, so I guess that was sort of this transition from the brown malts and the long aging to mellow the beer to the pale malts and the ability to serve younger beers. And then, as you say, with the invention of the uh, patent roast malt, that facilitated that transition as well. So I guess, yeah, yeah so the, this was the period of time where we're seeing both a, a um, procedural or an industrial transformation of the beer as well as a change in the style. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the fascinating things I think about porter um, is that if, if anybody says, I want to brew an authentic porter, you have to say, right, well, when do you want to be authentic to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of history, would you like to, to be authentic to? Because it, it's changed. You know, we think of it as like you know, porter is porter. It's changed half a dozen at least different times down, down the years. Fascinating. Well, yeah. it seems to me like a lot of the – the change to Porter was really just uh, financially driven. You know, yeah. uh, to the change in the malts, the change in uh, aging. You know, aging a beer is expensive. You know, oh, yeah. it, it requires you know uh, storage, and you know you've locked up your materials for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and you get uh, obvious losses when you when you age a beer. So, I think a, a lot of the, yeah. the history of Porter is just driven by you know economics. Yeah, well, this was, of course was one of the barriers to entry for for smaller brewers um, that they they couldn't afford to tie up this capital in uh, aging the beer for for a couple of years, um, and it's it's why the London uh, porter brewers um, porter brewing became restricted to uh, six eight also really really big companies um uh, which came to to dominate the market um and then a whole mass of other much smaller uh brewers below them and it, it uh it wasn't until uh brewing technologies it was still um although uh, i think at the at its height porter was about 80 percent of the of uh, the london beer market um uh, gradually that started to fall away as as people's tastes changed or uh, not so much people's taste changing as, as porter drinkers dying and not being re- replaced by a new cohorts of porter drinkers. The new drinkers that were coming in were, were drinking different sorts of beers. Um, and they were drinking mild ale, quite fresh, still quite strong. Um, and gradu- gradually at the same time, what was happening was that uh, technology was catching up so that you could you could brew these mild ales on the same sorts of scale that the porter brewers had been able to, to okay. brew their beers. So uh, the London mild ale brewers had all been very much smaller than, than the porter brewers. The porter brewers uh, were getting up to 200,000 barrels a year 
each, you know, which which for the time was enormous. These were the guys were the biggest brewers in in the world. Uh, the ale brewers were, were tenths of the size, twenty thousand barrels or so on. Suddenly, in in the nineteenth century, uh, as taste change in ale becomes more popular, and uh, uh, and as technology enables the ale brewers to brew on the same sort of scale as the porter brewers had, you see the the ale brewers uh, suddenly. It, Gain on uh, in, in terms of size, gaining rapidly on the porter brewers, and by the by the eighteen sixties or so, uh, names that have been you know well down the the rankings um, when they were ale brewers are now as big as the big London porter brewers. Um, so and again, it's, it's, it's this mystery: why do why do people's tastes change? We don't know, but they they do. And one, one of the fascinating things about that is. Um, Every single style of beer has always been replaced eventually by another style of beer. Uh, so you saw port. I'm talking about Britain specifically here, but it's true in other countries as well. Uh, you see porter replaced by mild beer. You saw mild beer in Britain replaced by bitter. And then you saw bitter replaced by lager. What's going to replace lager? People are starting to talk about uh, IPAs. And I would not be at all surprised if we see eventually the, the uh, 90 or 100 year rule of big lager finally succumb to a new type of beer because it's happened to every other oh, yeah. uh, dominant type of beer. You know, again, this is one of, the, one of the fascinating things about Porter is seeing it decline and then uh, surge back up again. Right. If Porter declined, when it was such a massive, massive, huge um, mm-hmm. force in the in in the market, why should the same not happen to to longer? I don't know. Well, and did did Porter really decline, or did we just start calling it Stout more? Uh, well, you know? uh, that's an, uh, again an interesting um, question in in Britain and in Ireland. Um, one of the problems again was that uh, strength started to fall partly initially in the 19th century to try to keep the beer cheap. And then we hit, we in Britain, we had the first world war, world war one came along, uh, taxes soared enormously. They went up from about um, less than a pound a barrel to uh, five pound to 10 pound, 15 pound a barrel. Mm. Um, this again put, has previously put pressure on brewers to keep try to keep the beer affordable. So strengths plunged, uh, and what had been, Porter had been before the First World War in Britain, been around about five and a half six percent alcohol. End of the First World War, it was down to three three and a half percent. Stout had gone down as well, but stout was now the same strength that Porter had been. So if you wanted that same experience you now drank stout rather than porter and porter uh was very much an old man's drink um it was you know literally dying on his feet and it finally i think the last porter in britain has still kept on in ireland where it was drunk by shipyard workers who just came off the came off shift and wanted something to wash the dust from their throats and to refresh them and stuff. in uh in britain the last porter was brewed in uh, the early years of the second world war and then just vanished after after 250 years so so yes it's 
it's true uh, that Porter was was replaced by Stout, uh, but uh, as, as far as being Britain's favourite beer was concerned, it, it was replaced by Mild Ale. Mild mm-hmm. Ale was the dominant working class beer in Britain. In America, interestingly, there was not this replacement of Porter by Stout. Um, there seems to be very few, from what I've been able to find, very few beers called Stout brewed in oh. in the States. It was almost always called Porter. Um, it was uh, very regionally popular in uh, certainly uh, in or and around Pennsylvania and in New York and in New England. Um, but after when uh, Everything came back and restarted after uh, Prohibition. There were still a lot of porters being brewed. Very few, again, very few stouts. Um, but, of course, nobody had drunk a porter. There were a few, uh, I think uh, Yingling produced something called Porto or something like that during during Prohibition. So, you know, there was kind of near beer style porters. Um, but basically nobody had drunk a porter for, for 13 years. So anybody uh, under uh, 30 or 31 never had this beer, or well, certainly not legally and probably probably not at all. So you've got a whole like missing, <laughs> missing cohort of people who are not used to this tr- strong black beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to sell them a stout, you know, an even stronger, even full of more full of flavour beer, uh, wasn't going to work. So you start to see quite a lot of porters in the 30s and then really diving down until probably uh, by the 50s, very few porters. And I think um, through to the 70s, there were maybe about four mm-hmm. porters still being stink, still being brewed. There was uh, Darren Gansett, uh, it was still going in Rhode Island. Uh, it was uh, Yingling and Stigmeyer, and I think there might have been one other, but that was it. Um, and I don't think any stouts at all. So we, we, there was a difference um, in the way that the, uh, it develops in the British Isles, where, yes, Porter more or less gave way to stout, uh, and in the States where, where Porter just vanished and, and stout never really took its place. And was was Porter, you know, one of the the first beers being brewed in the United States? Uh, uh, no, I don't something think similar. Yeah, um, the first Porter brewer that I've been uh, been able to find in in the states was a guy in uh, of all places, Virginia. Um, he was a, a plantation owner, Irish plantation owner, uh, who was um, um, trying to he was losing money on his plantation, and he decided that he would start. Brewing Porter. Um, this was the 1760s. Uh, previous to that, there had been quite a lot of brewers, but they'd all been brewing ales. Uh, and they'd relied for the Porter on imports uh, because it was still uh, felt at that time that, you know, only London could brew Porter and only Thames Water. You know, there was this myth of uh, the idea that only Thames Water could make decent Porter, although, uh, in fact, probably a minority of, of brewers were using Thames water to make porter. Um, so for a long time, it was felt that you couldn't you couldn't brew decent porter in, in America until this guy uh, had a go. wasn't very successful. Um, eventually, his, his brewery collapsed, uh, and that was at the end of the 1760s. 
Then along came, of course, uh, famously, uh, Robert Hare, whose father had been or was a porter brewer in London um, in a place called Limehouse, which is by the Thames. Uh, he had been exporting his beers uh, to America, sent his son out uh, with a, a, a recipe book, and I think £1,500, um, and he, I think it was, Thinking about settling in New York, but eventually second settled in Philadelphia, built himself a brewery there uh, and was immediate, almost immediately very successful. And of course, famously, um, George Washington was a big fan of his uh, porters. Washington had been previously importing porter from, from London. Uh, and by the 1770s, you start to get porter appearing in Bristol as well. So imports from Bristol. I want to tell you all about my good friends at Brew Chatter, brewchatter.com. They're out in uh, Sparks, Nevada, right near Reno. And uh, they've signed on as uh, uh, to help, uh, again, uh, pay for this show so you don't have to. And uh, you can check out their stuff. If you want to brew a great porter, I know my friends uh, RJ and Josh at uh, uh, Brew Chatter. They have all the uh, ingredients. They have everything you need. They have all the knowledge. They can help you out uh, producing a great porter. So if you want to make a, uh, a porter um, of whatever uh, history <laughs> uh, types of in, in history, uh, they could they could help you do that, including uh, aging it uh, with Brett in uh, a wooden vessel. They could do that, too. Uh, one more short break and we'll be back uh, right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. Okay, we're back. We're talking uh, porters uh, with Martin and a uh, couple of things. Uh, you've, uh, I, I follow your blog. I follow your uh, your uh, Twitter and all this stuff. And uh, your blog, you actually, uh, it'll email out uh, all your latest postings. And there again, they're, they're very detailed. They're, you know, it's, it's a history lesson about, you know, something in particular. It's, it's very, it's a very nice read. Uh, where do people go to find uh, more about uh, your writings and uh, your books? If I can give myself a plug, you can, you can find my uh, blog at zithophile, Z-Y-T-H-O-P-H-I-L-E dot co dot UK. That's the blog. I try to put something up at least twice a month, but they tend to be, I do it entirely wrong. You're not meant to put long form essays on a blog. <laughs> I can't help myself. They all end up over 2000 words. I, once I get started, it just goes on and on. And they do, I have to say, they do take a lot of research. Uh, so that's why I don't do them more often. Um, and I don't, I do it uh, in part to get the story straight in my, my own head. I, it's not so much, uh, I mean, I'm glad that people enjoy reading them, uh, but I don't really do it so much of the audience it's for me. It's, it's all being done for me. Um, the the uh, the books are available on Amazon. Um, but I've, I think about the only one is Strange Tale of the Vale, which is a collection of, of uh, past, the more interesting, I think, past blogs like the uh, flying beer in uh, Spitfire drop tanks to the Normandy beaches and, 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 and stories like that. Um, you can only the, the other the book I'm most proud of so far uh, is called um, Amber Golden Black, which is the history of 
British beer styles. Uh, and that is now out of print, although you can still get the uh, Kindle version. Oh, uh, so it's still available on Kindle. And I'm surprised that came out in 2010. And I'm surprised I was uh, having a look at it. It's it's still stands up historically quite well, although plenty of things have changed. You know, I was just I just fitted in a, uh, a history, brief history of mention of, of uh, barrel aging, which was barely a thing in 2010. And and similarly, the IPA uh, chapter stops before massive expansion of uh, different styles of of uh, okay. that we've we've seen recently someone uh, Sorry, uh, the, the friend of mine asked me uh he said uh oh you know he was reading something about how um jim cook uh, from boston beer invented uh barrel aging beer and i was thinking about that and you know like well beer has been barrel aged for a long time uh you yeah. know I mean, it, we see with the story of Porter, um, do you have a sense of, you know, did people back then only use new barrels lined in pitch or did they, um, uh, you know, ever reuse, you know, whiskey barrels or uh, wine you know, something like that, wine barrels? No, I think um, they, they tried, to, British brewers certainly tried to get as little barrel character into their beers as possible. Um, they would buy um, oak, what they call memel oak, which came from uh, the Baltic, the, um, what is now, I think, modern uh, Lithuania, uh, which is very tight-grained oak, so that you would get very little oak character coming out of it. Um, mm. this is, we've, we've, we've barely, we're running out of time, we've barely even talked about it. One of the reasons why uh, you got Baltic porters is because the brewers were exporting their beer uh, to the Baltic so that they could bring back this oak from the Baltic and also the iron to make the hoops with and also the uh, Isinglass, uh, which was came from Russian sturgeon fish. Uh, so they didn't uh, pitch. I've, I've seen no references to using pitch. Um, but they certainly wanted no uh, oak character at all in their beers. Um, so aging it the way that people do now in terms of actually in, in getting actual um, character from the from the barrel is a, is a very new thing. It's a terrific thing. You know, we, um, we're seeing all sorts of uh, wonderful new styles and so on develop. The only people um, who were happy to get that sort of character out were the uh, Scotch whiskey Uh Distillers who who liked to buy, as you probably know, uh, buy old sherry barrels, mm -hmm. uh, and they were getting some of the sherry character out. But um, beer brewers, uh, certainly in Britain, would would try to avoid anything to, to do with that. It wasn't mm -hmm. anything that they wanted at all. I, you know, it's just fascinating, uh, you know, your knowledge of uh, the history of beer and, and, and porter. And uh, One question I got to ask you, um, what is what is one of your favorite beers uh, to enjoy now? What what styles of beers are you mainly enjoying or? Um, I'd like to say that if you've got a favorite style of beer, you don't really like beer. Uh, <laughs> depends right. where you are, what you're doing and so on. Um, right now, because it's quite 
cold. It suddenly got very cold and damp in Britain. And it's time again to drink dark ales. Uh, and love and love we have a lovely tradition in this country of of what we call winter warmers mm-hmm. uh, dark quite um you know quite a lot of brewing sugars in there um full of fruity flavors uh six seven eight percent and they're just great for sitting around a fire and sipping, ah. sipping gently so that's uh at Brilliant. the moment those those are the beers that i'm i'm particularly enjoying but I, you know, I drink. Uh, if I'm at a hot Greek beach, I'll drink a pale lager. You know, the same with everybody else. You know, wherever you are, it's, depends it's on the situation. situation. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There you go. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been a it's an absolute joy. Uh, next time I'm out in uh, the UK, I'm going to uh, uh, let you know, and hopefully we can get together and, uh, and have a pint. Yes, yes, yeah. well, please do, please do. Uh, and thank you very much for letting me rab it on for an hour. Uh, <laughs> it was our pleasure, yeah. <laughs> Great show. Awesome. Anybody else has to <laughs> Thank you, and thank you to our uh, fine sponsors. Uh, check out uh, Blickman Engineering, BlickmanEngineering.com. Innovating your brew day. Check out uh, Brew Chatter, our good friends, RJ and Josh at Brew Chatter. Uh, a great homebrew supply shop that can uh, help you uh, craft a great porter, great, uh, great whatever beer you have. If you're listening live, stay tuned. John and I will do a, a show, a Q&A show. Uh, answering your questions live on uh, whatever brew topic you might have. Thanks again, Martin, and uh, we will see you all uh, next time. Until then, everyone, brew strong. Brew strong, everyone. Brew strong, everyone.